This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. In acknowledgement of Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month, who better to interview than an advocacy group focused on ovarian cancer? I had the pleasure of speaking with OCRA, which is the Ovarian Cancer Research Alliance, and interviewed Audra Moran, the president and CEO, along with Sarah DeFeo, the VP of Scientific Affairs and Programs. While there are about 22,000 new ovarian cancer cases per year, the five-year survival rate is only 47.6%. Audra and Sarah help us better understand this tragic condition, including symptoms, treatment options, and things women should do to take charge of their health. A big congratulations and thank you to OCRA for their incredible efforts in doubling the research dollars allocated to ovarian cancer research. Please join me in welcoming Audra and Sarah. Welcome, Sarah and Audra. It is so nice to have you on the FemPower Health podcast to talk about ovarian cancer, as well as your organization and how you support women. And the organization is OCRA. So what I'd love to do is to first have you all introduce yourselves and talk about the organization. And I must say, I'm really excited because this is the first time FemPower Health has had two podcast guests at the same time. So I I think this will be exciting, different way of operating. So I don't know which of you wanted to go first, but, you know, tell us what you do for OCRA and whichever one of you wanted to share about the organization would be great. Okay, Um, great. Well, thank you so much for having us. We're really excited to be here. My name is Audra Moran, and I am the president and CEO of OCRA. And I'll let Sarah speak for herself. Yes, I'm Sarah DeFeo, and I am um, Vice President of Scientific Affairs and Programs at OCRA and work closely with Ladra. And the organization, and just a little bit about it, is that it actually was founded in 1994, so it's the oldest and largest ovarian cancer organization in the world, actually. We fund research, we provide education, um, which we're happy to talk more about for medical students, but also for the public, um, and we actually provide support services as well and do advocacy. So we're kind of a 360 approach. And Sarah does a lot of that. Sarah handles most of our programs, so she can speak to it much more than I can. Did I miss stuff, Sarah? No, that's it. I mean, you know, the organization has really evolved since the time um, that Audra and I have been part of the organization. I joined in November of 2008, so it's time really flies. Mm -hmm. Um, And Audra, you joined in... 2010? 2010, yep. Okay, yeah. So it's been more than 10 years for both of us. And I think when both of us started, certainly when I started in 2008, and also when Audra came on board, you know, it was a very different, very different organization, much smaller. Um, I mean, the organization was always a national organization, but was only funding research, really, at that point. And uh, since then, we've just evolved into um, sort of grown up, I think, a lot. 
um, and evolved into the organization that Audra described and that we all are today. And we do so many more things now, fund research, provide support, educate, all of those things, and really, really try to serve our ovarian cancer community in in every way that we can um, and to try to meet patients and families no matter where, wherever they are, whether they're just diagnosed um, or whether they're long-term survivors, we try to provide resources and, and be, there, be there for them. And it, it's great to have you all on this podcast. So I had reached out because I know it's Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month and I did some research around who would we want to interview and you know, being in the biopharmaceutical industry and also working through my own fertility journey, I've seen firsthand the power of um, advocacy groups and those who do research. And so I thought, who better to talk about what's happening in the space of ovarian cancer, how women get diagnosed, where the research is at, any gaps, to at, at the very least create awareness, not only for those who are struggling, but also for people who don't even have awareness of ovarian cancer. Because, you know, we all think with any kind of cancer or illness, it's not going to be me. But in my initial, you know, research, and I even remember in college, um, there was a seminar where someone came in and spoke about HPV and ovarian cancer. And, you know, that was the only discussion I've ever heard. Um, and it just so happened the people I was surrounded with happened to bring an expert in. And I don't remember a whole heck of a lot, except that it's really scary and often goes misdiagnosed or not diagnosed. And so I thought if it's Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month, let's leverage that to create that awareness. Um, so I appreciate that you guys are open to this because I think it's really, really important, especially for those who aren't even aware. So maybe you could tell us, start by talking about ovarian cancer. Um, like obviously it's a cancer, but what else can you share about what it is and how women get diagnosed? Like, let's really help women understand where things are at with this. I think, Sarah, you're probably better to do a lot of this, but I will say that one of the biggest myths is that a pap smear tests for ovarian cancer, and it does not. So that's pretty significant. And through the years, Sarah and I, how, how many times have we heard, Sarah, people say, oh, no, I got my pap smear, I'm fine. And it's like, no, 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 that, that doesn't test for that at all. That's cervical cancer, and it's completely different. So that's one of the myths that we fight really hard. Um, but certainly there are symptoms. Um, Sarah can talk a little bit about that. And, and no diagnostic test, sadly, no early detection. Um, but that's obviously a goal. All the things that Audra said, of course, are true. So there is no uh, method of early detection for ovarian cancer. And this is one of the biggest challenges. Actually, before that, I'll back up and just say that I'm going to, you know, we're here to talk about ovarian cancer, and that makes it sound like it's really just one thing. But in fact, it's ovarian cancers. Um, ovarian cancer is not just one disease. Um, there are different types of ovarian cancer. The most common type of ovarian cancer and the one that is usually being referred to when people talk about ovarian cancer is really just one type epithelial ovarian cancer. And it's the one that affects the majority of women. Um, so just as a, just to sort of set the stage, mostly when we're talking, when I, if I'm talking or Audra's talking, that's probably what we're talking about. But I think it's important to just say that out loud, that it is a heterogeneous disease. And, you know, depending on the type of ovarian cancer you may have, it may be treated differently. Um, so just wanted to put that out there. But in general, yeah, one of the most challenging things about ovarian cancer is that women tend to be diagnosed late stage. And, you know, 
Audra and I could talk for a long time about why that is, uh, and it's complicated. Certainly, uh, the fact, as Audra said, that there's no method of early detection is a huge piece, a huge piece of it, and there's research going on uh, in that area. But uh, ovarian cancer in its earliest stages doesn't produce a lot of symptoms. And it also doesn't really start in the ovaries in most cases. It starts in the fallopian tubes and migrates to the ovaries. Yeah. Which is also kind of, you know, it's not fallopian cancer, but it's not what we're calling it yet. But um, that is fairly significant. And part of the symptom, what what we believe is part of the reason symptoms don't manifest until much later. That's right. That's right. Because, um, because it doesn't tend to produce symptoms in its early stages, there are some exceptions to that, but for the most part, it doesn't. You know, usually when women tend to start getting symptoms that they cannot explain, no one, most time women aren't thinking, oh, these are the symptoms of ovarian cancer. They're just thinking, geez, I'm really bloated. Why aren't my pants fitting? You know, why does it seem like I'm gaining weight around my middle? Or, you know, oh, I've got no appetite. I can't eat. Um, you know, take a couple of bites and I just, and I can't eat anymore. Or, you know, I'm, I'm going to the bathroom all the time. Or, you know, I'm having strange, you know, pain in my lower abdomen. These are all symptoms of ovarian cancer, but most like, but they're really mostly symptoms of more advanced ovarian cancer because what's causing those symptoms is the growth of the tumors itself, unfortunately. So oftentimes women with early stage disease don't have symptoms. By the time they get to their doctor, um, no matter what kind of doctor it is, and they're, they are trying to figure out, you know, what is going on? I don't feel right. It's often an advanced, um, advanced cancer at that point. Do you mind if I ask about the symptoms? So, so I'm a patient, um, I'm an endometriosis patient, and I was asymptomatic. And it took three years of infertility treatments to finally be diagnosed. And so they called my endometriosis silent. But there were signs. And I did want to ask about these symptoms because one of the things through all these podcast interviews that I'm doing is how clear it is that there's almost two buckets. One, when the woman's body is often treated as being ill, when it may not be. So for example, menopause, it's not a diagnosis. It's not a condition. It's a stage of life. (laughs) But on the flip side, there's, you know, a lack of awareness that we as women have around how our bodies should operate. And as a result, we grin and bear it. And maybe there are things going on, but we aren't aren't taught on what is normal. We only know what's normal for us. And as a result, even if there are subtle changes in our body, how do we even know what to bring up? So have you all, is there research out there around just challenging that? Like, are there really changes to the body or I I know we're going to discuss this because it's the case with every single woman's health condition, which is maybe we probably don't know because there's not enough research dollars. But just from you all, what you all have seen, I mean, could there be those early, early changes or are we just not even sure? I mean, I think it's certainly possible. And there are women, you know, there, there, are, there are certainly are women who exhibit symptoms and go to the doctor and do have early stage disease. That's just not the most common. So, you know, that, that it's just not typical, but it's certainly possible. Every, you know, every case is different, but, you know, I think, I think trying to get a better grip on that is something that research is looking into. Certainly a very common experience is that a woman goes to the doctor with these symptoms that seem kind of vague, right? I mean, the symptoms I described are not, not so unusual. I mean, I may have one of those symptoms at any given time. So, you know, any of us could, and they don't necessarily seem 
alarming or necessarily gynecologic in nature, right? So it's very common for women to bounce around to doctors for months trying to get a correct diagnosis because maybe, well, it's mostly issues with your stomach. So you go to your internist who's like, well, have you been stressed out? You know, have you been eating weird food? You know, and sort of pursuing um, a path that has nothing to do with um, you know, a, a gynecologic condition because it doesn't appear that it would be that. Um, so, you know, we've got women who go to their internists, to GI doctors, to psychiatrists and psychologists being told, who knows? <laughs> and and so it often takes women a long time to get the correct diagnosis, which is a real shame. But I, And I do think that there's an issue there with uh, awareness on um, I mean, on, on the part of women to understand what these symptoms can look like, but also in the medical community yep. that ovarian cancer can, that doesn't necessarily look like <laughs> what, um, what you might think, you know, it's technically a rare cancer, uh, right. 22,000 cases a year in the United States. And so a lot of doctors have never seen a case. Um, so yeah. that's, you said 2000 yeah. cases a year, 22,000, 22,000. 22, yes. I guess that's, I mean, there's so many questions in here. <laughs> so one is if there isn't a, a diagnostic, well, I guess, how does one get diagnosed? Because you said it's not through a pap smear, but I, I got the sense that there's not a diagnostic. So then is it similar to endometriosis where you have to go in and do a laparoscopic surgery and see, is that where we are with ovarian cancer? So what will usually happen is there'll be a, a series of tests. So a woman might go in with complaints, doctor may get concerned, may say, order a CAT scan or do an ultrasound, transvaginal ultrasound. On the ultrasound or the scan, they may, you know, they may be able to see something in there and say, okay, there's some sort of mass, (laughs) let's check this out. They may give a woman a blood test that's called a CA-125 and an elevated CA-125 level could be an indicator that something is, is wrong. Um, it's, not, it's not a great indicator, which is why it's not a reliable screening test or a diagnostic test on its own, but it's one of the things that doctors use. And I'm not a doctor, <laughs> but it's one of the things that doctors use. And a number um, of things can elevate it, like right. being pregnant or you know, yes. other types of things. Yeah, exactly. So it's not a great, it's not a great marker, but it's something that doctors use when they're doing that, when they're exploring the issue. But yes, ultimately, uh, women have to go in and um, undergo a surgery to find out what's really going on. Biopsies aren't traditionally done because there's concern about spreading disease through the process of doing a biopsy. But I think by the time most, most women, by the time they're going in for surgery, doctors are pretty confident about the diagnosis. But it's, yeah, it's not a simple process um, to get a diagnosis. You know, you can't, you can't um, visualize the ovaries very, you know, easily. It's not like, it's not like cervical cancer. You know, we can't see it. We can't feel it. So the diagnosis is, uh, it's, a, it's a more lengthy and complicated and unfortunately invasive process. And isn't it pretty darn life-threatening once, I mean, so again, because we don't always catch the folks early and I don't know how much of a clinical trial there has been done, but is it, if you have it, it's a big problem? Is it, if it's diagnosed late, which we already know in most cases it is, that's when it's a problem? Like where, like tell us about what women should be expecting about this path. 
So, I mean, yeah, it, you know, it, it, again, varies very much based on the type of ovarian cancer you have and the stage at which you're diagnosed. If you happen to be diagnosed early, your chances of survival are, um, are pretty good, you know, over 90%. But the majority of women are diagnosed with state with advanced disease. So stage three or four, um, and the, five years survival, um, you know, for all ovarian cancers is uh, just under 50%. So it's a very serious diagnosis, um, very serious. And there's good news too. Women are living longer and longer with ovarian cancer and there's more treatments now than there were 10 years ago. Women are living longer and living better, but any diagnosis of ovarian cancer is, is a very, is very serious. That said, we do say every case is individual and it really yes. is. We have a major conference that we do every year and, you know, we'll have people there with, you know, a full range of both survive, uh, brand new diagnosed all the way through 30 year survivors. Wow. And I mean, we yeah. do this, we, we actually, it's a very impactful part of the conference where we'll say, you know, if you're comfortable, will you stand? And so we'll ask who's newly diagnosed, who's five years out, 10 years out. And when we get to 30 years out and, you know, many women are standing, it's incredibly hopeful because each case is unique. And I think yep. that's what people need to take away. Also, many people go on the internet and read everything, read exactly what Sarah just said, which is true, but it's terrifying. And, and yep. so I think it's important to remember everybody's different. Yeah. So, yep. so then as if I'm a woman listening to this podcast, as the facilitator of this podcast, I certainly don't want to say, okay, ladies, everyone go get a cat, uh, go get a, a scan. Let's, let's start over-testing. Let's freak out. We all have ovarian cancer. <laughs> so, you know, instead, like, let's, um, and by the way, I, I'm not at all implying that that was your intention. I just, I'm more, I'm just like thinking about the women who are like proactive and are going to go yeah. on WebMD and start researching this and go on your website. I don't want anyone to panic. I mean, granted, of course, this is a horrible scenario. So let's call that um, what it is. But what would you advise to women about, being proactive and like, what are risk factors? Because if I'm not mistaken, didn't Angelina Jolie get her ovaries removed because it's a risk factor as well as her breast tissue? Mm -hmm. So there must be risk factors that someone can at least have heightened awareness of, but anything else you have to share about it, please, please do. Well, Sarah, I'll let you talk about risk, but I would just mention in terms of someone running out of money to get a transvaginal ultrasound or a CA-125, to that point, there was a large, large scale study in the UK, 200,000 people, Sarah, I think, which is large. Um, clearly they have socialized medicine. It was easier for them to do this. And they did do this. They, they administered CA-125 and they did transvaginal ultrasounds over time. And I forget, Sarah, the, the period, but it was a long period of time. And the results were disappointing, um, at least in the category of people that weren't genetically at risk. Uh, it didn't, they did identify in some cases ovarian cancer earlier, but it didn't change the, what's the word, Sarah? Um, the outcome. <laughs> endpoint. Yeah. I mean, sadly, it didn't. Basically, you find out sooner that you have ovarian cancer, but it doesn't, if you're going to, you know, die from the disease, it's literally the same amount of time. Wow. Um, yeah. And it was, it was heartbreaking because these researchers devoted 30 years of their lives to this, I think, over a period of time, right? But it did prove that that's not the, you know, that's not going to be the holy grail. That's not going to be the early detection test. Yes. Yeah, so, right. <laughs> so don't run out and start don't to, run out, right. yeah. <laughs> to your point, George, you're absolutely right. That that's, that's not what we want women to do, but there are things that women can and should do. And it's also important to note that 
as and I think Audrey said this before, this is a rare disease. I mean, it's not so rare that um, once you have an awareness of it, you know, and, and you start talking about it or, or you have an awareness of it, you, you're going to start to know, you know, you're going to start to realize, oh, it was my, my friend's mom. She died of ovarian cancer. Oh, and it was, you know, so-and-so's sister. I actually think she had ovarian cancer. So it is a rare disease, but not, not rare enough. But there are things that people can be proactive about. And I think the number one thing that I always encourage women to do is to know, know their risk. You asked about risk factors. And yes, there are risk factors. Um, there are things that elevate your risk and also things that reduce your risk. So one of the biggest things that we know about um, in terms of risk factor is certain genetic mutations. You mentioned Angelina Jolie, right? She was positive. I believe it was for the BRCA1 mutation, um, which is most well known for being a high risk factor for breast cancer, but as you said, also for ovarian, ca- ovarian cancer. So women with BRCA1 and 2 genetic mutations and a whole bunch of other genetic mutations, less well known because they're less prevalent women with those mutations are at higher risk. Um, And researchers are working hard on better defining what those mutations are and to what extent those confer risk, uh, increased risk. Um, That's something that researchers are working on. So I think it's important for women to look at their family histories, you know, ask questions about, well, you know, what cancer exactly was it that aunt, great aunt so-and-so had? And what did grandma have? And to try to get those answers because if there is a pattern in your family of women with breast and ovarian cancer, then you should absolutely go talk to a genetic counselor who will take your family history, ask you a bunch of questions, and help you decide if genetic counseling or genetic testing, rather, is something that you should consider. Because one of the most important things that powerful, impactful things that we can do to stop women from dying of ovarian cancer is to find the women who are at highest risk and, you know, if possible, intervene so that they never get the disease in the first place. You know, Angelina Jolie had a prophylactic mastectomy to prevent herself from getting breast cancer, and she had her ovaries removed, hopefully to prevent herself from ever getting ovarian cancer. And, um, you know, those are, those are big choices to make in your life. But I think we at OCRA believe very much that knowledge, knowledge about this issue really is power and understanding um, your family history and to the extent that that can impact your risk is thing number one that you can do. Maternal and paternal side. I just want to note some people really think it's only, yeah, both sides. For example, I, I carry, I carry a genetic mutation and it came from my father. So um, yeah. And which does make it tricky because um, my, my father had brothers. There's not a strong history of breast or ovarian cancer in my family, but my dad had only had brothers. <laughs> oh, you know, so it can be tricky. It's not always super straightforward, but yes, that's a very good point, Audra. Very good point. I never even thought about it that way, but you're, you have a dad who's only brothers. Like, yeah. how do you? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. um, okay. So I mean, that's the genetic component. There are other risk factors as well. Um, okay. I mean, increasing age, um, which is really a very big risk factor. Uh, if you haven't had children, the, the flip side of that is that a protective factor is having had children. Or using birth control. Or using birth control. It's oral, protective? Yep. Oral contraceptive use for five years or more is probably one of the easiest things. Well, taking medication, it's not, it's not a small decision, but is something um, significantly reduces your risk of getting ovarian cancer. 
Okay. So many questions. <laughs> okay. Let's start with what you just said about birth control. So, you know, as I mentioned, I've been dealing with women's health personally and professionally, just really staying close to it for 10 years and covering initially it was mostly fertility and now I've really broadened out because at the end of the day, if you don't solve for the root cause, it will impact your pregnancy. And also not everyone, a woman, every woman wants to have a child. So I think, you know, it really needs to be a women's health focused. And, you know, there's a lot of controversy out there about birth control pills and how it impacts your health and how it can temporarily impact symptoms like acne and whatnot, but it may mask what's really going on with you. Yet I'm hearing now that it can help <laughs> with, uh, it reduces the risks of ovarian cancer. So I honestly don't even know what to yeah. do with that because it's such okay. a contradiction. So why does birth control assist? So I think this is something that researchers are still trying to figure out exactly what mechanism is at work and exactly why is that? I believe the theory is that it has to do with the interruption of ovulation and which is why pregnancy and breastfeeding and oral birth control pills probably, it's probably all related, <laughs> um, but it's the interruption of ovulation that seems to have a protective a protective force. <laughs> yeah, it's quite, it's fascinating. Um, wow. But, you know, for if, if there's a woman who's truly worried about her risk, but is say, you know, only 30 years old and doesn't, maybe she knows she's at high risk, but doesn't want to have her ovaries out because she's 30 and maybe she wants to have kids someday. Taking birth control pills is something that I suspect most doctors would, or, you know, it's something she should talk to her doctor about. For wow. Sure. Yep. Silly question, but I must ask, has it been studied about with PCOS patients who don't mm -hmm. ovulate very frequently, whether or not the risk factors of ovarian cancer are the same as any woman or different? Because Right. I have heard about the frequency of ovulation impacting ovarian cancer, but what about that PCOS patient? Okay. I don't know. That's a good question. That's, it seems like, I don't know if you know, Audrey, probably someone has studied it because it is, it is a great question. And I think researchers are trying to better understand exactly what, what is going on there biologically. Right. But I don't know. So then back to testing. So, you know, we, we heard about 23andMe and now Ancestry also has their own testing. I do believe, I haven't researched what they test in extremely great detail, but I do feel like the BRCA they do look at. Genetic testing is expensive and, you know, we are in this age of testing. Are those effective if someone wants to start to get to know their risk factors? Like what, and again, I know that you're not an MD, so I'm, we'll all qualify that acceptance. But just from what you've heard, are there any precautions? Do they even not test for it? Like what perspectives should someone, someone have in this age of testing at home? Good question. Audrey, do you want me to take well, this? Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's my understanding that it does test for the big ones, BRCA1 and 2, but there are apparently hundreds, um, if not thousands, I'm not even sure, Sarah, how many mutations um, of BRCA. So I think oh. that it can ensure that you don't have it. And unfortunately, it gives people, I think, a false sense of security because they take it and it comes back negative. In addition to the fact, if it comes back positive, a genetic counselor is, is really key. And I know, Sarah, you Got can it. address that, but it, it makes all the difference, I think, because that's a huge thing to find out in your mailbox, you know, with right. nobody around. On your own. To. <laughs> right. On your right. Own. 
Yeah, I, it's kind of the Wild West out there, I think, with these these testing. And I'm not an expert on this, and I don't know what 23andMe versus Ancestry, their health panel, what exactly they're testing for. You know, I think there certainly is a lot of opportunity and room for innovation in this space. And I think it's great that uh, researchers are trying to look at ways to break down barriers to access to testing. And this is extremely important, especially given the potential upside um, and the benefit um, to people in terms of access to testing. But I think that there's probably some ways of doing it are better than others. And, you know, this is, this is being studied. Something that OCRA has been, been involved with is um, a large study that's looked at making genetic testing more accessible. It was a big clinical trial called the Magenta trial. And I'm not, I can't off the top of my head give you all the details, though we are going to cover this at our conference in, in detail at the end of September, um, all about the trial and looking at how we can use more innovative methods of genetic t- testing and counseling to help people access it, but access it in a way that doesn't cause undue stress and confusion. And some of that involves just making sure that people either have access to genetic counseling remotely prior to or after testing or just access to information. What concerns me is just what Audra said, that this getting genetic testing may feel like not a big deal until you get a positive result. And then all of a sudden, you know, you have this information and you have to try to figure out what to deal with it, you know, what to do with it, how to deal with this. And it's not an easy thing to navigate. And, you know, I would just encourage people to, you know, it's not something, I think it's not something that we should approach in a cavalier manner, but something that, you know, people really need to educate themselves about. And, you know, if if at all possible, seek out a genetic counselor first. And, you know, if you're not a good candidate for genetic testing, your genetic counselor will tell you, you know, okay. they're not in the business of selling tests. Okay. They're in the business of helping you understand the potential benefits and risks to genetic testing. I'll tell you the three next things I wanted to talk about. I'll list it because it could all have something to do with each other. I have anecdotally heard that because I believe when I had my laparoscopic surgery for endometriosis, they did go in and look at ovarian cancer because I've anecdotally heard about the risk if you have endo. I seem to recall from that college conversation about HPV and ovarian cancer. So either I misremembered it or it was correct what I remembered. So I'd love for you to validate or invalidate that. And then the last is fertility medications. And I've seen both, there is a link, and then I've seen that there isn't. And I want to bring this up because there's a rise with use of fertility meds with egg freezing. So it's not just those who are struggling with fertility, but those who are doing fertility preservation, whether they're dealing with a cancer, by the way, (laughs) let's not add to the list, right? But also fertility preservation. So again, endo, HPV, and fertility meds. So can you help like either validate or say those are myths or whatever the data information you have would be great? Well, I think we can say with HPV, to my knowledge, no link between HPV and ovarian cancer. The link is with HPV and cervical cancer. Ah, okay. Thank you. See, I'm glad and I asked. That's what the pap smear is looking for, right? They're, okay. it's, well, it's not looking for HPV, but it's, it's looking for abnormal cells, but that's the link there is between okay. HPV and cervical. The question about endometriosis, what exactly was the question again? I've already lost so, it. Yeah, no, I seem to recall that there's, 
I wouldn't say a, maybe link the way I explained it is not the right word, but I do remember an I should say an, maybe an association is a better word. I don't know what the the right word here is, but um, I know when I had my laparoscopic surgery, it seems like they were checking to make sure. So I, I'd love to know more about that. Yes, you're right. Endometrio uh, endometriosis is a risk factor for one of the types of ovarian cancer. And ah. I can't think off the top of my head. And this is, I, I'm sorry. I wish I. No, that's totally fine. I mean, I think it out while we're here. One um, of the rarer types, right? Okay. Yes, one of, yes. One of the rarer types. Okay. I think it's endometrioid ovarian cancer. That would make sense. So I'm, I'm looking up now. Yes, it is endometrioid ovarian cancer. Yes. So it makes total sense that during your surgery, your doctors were saying, well, let's see. I mean, that's great. It's good that they were doing that. Yes. And your meds. Yes. 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 (laughs) Yes. So I think this is another complicated and confusing one, sort of like hormone replacement therapy, where it's like, well, we hear this, but then we hear that. And we hear this, then we hear that. It's something that's being studied actively because I think there has been conflicting data. So scientists are continuing to try to tease it apart and understand it. I believe that more recent studies have shown that there is no significant increased risk. Now, I would need to go back and check my sources. <laughs> right. So that, that's what I believe. But there's, there's an increase in, I think some studies may have shown an increase in risk. There is a question of, well, what does that mean? Maybe yeah. it's technically an increase. But is it an increase that's, it's an increase, if it's a very small increase for a fairly rare disease that the vast majority of women don't, really need to worry about most of the time, it, it, that's, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's a reason for a woman to, you know, for a young woman who's just been diagnosed with cancer, not to go through fertility treatments to freeze her eggs, you okay. know, or um, so I think when we would, even if there is an increase in risk, I think we would need to look at it in the context of how big an increase in risk are we talking about here? If it's going to quadruple your chances of getting ovarian cancer or put you in a high risk category, which it wouldn't, that would obviously be very alarming. But if we're talking about an incremental increase for a woman who is otherwise low risk, that's not as alarming. So it's all about, I think the context really matters there. Thank you for explaining that because, you know, again, having been in, in industry, I was actually a science major, the way clinical trials are designed and also what they mean and how they're applicable in the day-to-day is so important. And unfortunately, sometimes in the media, the headline. <laughs> sure, right. Yeah. And so I appreciate you, you sharing that context. Okay, so now we understand. So the summary here is high-risk factors, potentially the CA-125 could be an indicator. Again, still need to understand, you know, family history, increasing age, not necessarily um, not having children. And then by the way, having children and breastfeeding reduces, birth control seems to impact it. So that's, and then going to your doctor and I guess, so what do women do with that? So if they have the risk factors, yeah. what's the next step for, for diagnosis and then treatment? I mean, it de- again, depends on, you know, if you're a healthy woman, but you have risk factors, say you have a, you know, family history of breast or ovarian cancer, or if you know you have a genetic mutation carrier, I think you need to partner with your doctor and get some really good advice about how you want to manage your risk, you know, and there's no one way to do it. You know, this is very much um, personal decision. Um, 
that has to do with your own, a million different factors, you know, most importantly, your own risk tolerance, um, you know, and where you are in your life. And, you know, there's two, two different women in the same situation could make different decisions and that would be the right, and those could be the right decisions for them. But I think um, I would just encourage a woman who is concerned about her risk to get that checked out, or if she knows she's high risk, to talk to your doctor and, and make a plan so that you can partner. On well, type of doctor matters too. So I, if it yes. were this, we'd be talking about a gynecologic oncologist. Okay. Yeah, very important. Yeah. And that, that was actually going to be my next question, because one of the things I'm learning, like, again, I've been in industry, so I already know about, you know, specialists, but there are these like sub sub specialists and I'm learning about these fascinating sub sub specialists that I never even had heard about. So, you know, it's not just going to NOBGYN, it's, there's more to it. Um, So anything women should know about that, because obviously the first stop is the OBGYN, but when do I go to someone who sub specializes it when I'm high risk and just want to triple check? Would that be the recommendation if they want to get the best? Okay. So I'm very glad Audra brought up this point about the importance of gynecologic oncologists. So we can talk about a woman who's at high risk, but if we're, if a woman has gotten to the point where, where there is a suspected ovarian cancer diagnosis, and if at that point she is still seeing her general OBGYN, the doctor who delivered her babies 15 years ago, or the person she's just been seeing every year, It's at that point that that she needs to go see a gynecologic oncologist. A gynecologic oncologist is a doctor who is specially trained, a a women's cancer doctor. And there's been ample research that has shown that women with ovarian cancer who are treated by gynecologic oncologists have better outcomes. So it's, it's one of the most important things that a woman can do is make sure she's being seen by a specialist. And if you're regular OBGYN says, oh, no, I can do the surgery. You got to push it. It's, it's worth making a special trip. It's worth that second opinion. Contact OCRA if you need help getting one. <laughs> it's extremely important that a woman see um, a specialist and have that surgery done by someone who really knows, who's really an expert in that. Um, now, do you have a list on your website of who those experts are by geography or would they just need to call you and get words of wisdom? Because if you have a website, I can put a link in the so show notes. And We have a lot of great resources on our website, okay. which is www.ocrahope.org. We have information about all about ovarian cancer, support resources. Um, we don't have a specific list of ovarian cancer specialists. It, it would be a long list. Okay. <laughs> there, there That's are good. That's good. Yeah. There are thousands of, um, not, a, we would like more GYN oncologists, but you know, it's a long list, but we can help connect women with those resources to make sure that they find someone. No, that's important to know. And so we don't need to dive deep into it because they can go to their doctor, but just maybe like two sentences on um, the treatment options. There's so many other things I wanted to cover in our um, time together. And I want to make sure we get to like your events and all the other great things you guys do. Yeah. Again, depends on diagnosis and the particulars. Um, Standard treatment is surgery um, to try to remove as much of the cancer as possible surgically and then follow up with chemo. And, you know, the specifics of in what order this takes place, exactly what you get will, would, all, would vary from woman to woman, but that's, that's the basic course of treatment. And then there, you know, after initial chemo has been completed, then there are different options depending on a woman's specific situation. Um, there may be maintenance therapies that 
you take sort of on an ongoing basis to keep the cancer at bay. You may go off treatment for a while, but with ovarian cancer, unfortunately, um, it's quite common for women to do very well up front, but then to have the cancer come back. And so dealing with the recurrence is, is a very um, unfortunate but common thing for ovarian cancer patients to deal with. But it's um, surgery and chemo, and then you go from there. And it's also very important to know your genetic status. So a lot of people, they're diagnosed with ovarian cancer, and they think, well, I've already got ovarian cancer. I don't need to know. But they do need to know because there are some treatments that would actually be more effective if they have, if you're BRCA positive, for example. So it it is important. And I think, unfortunately, that's not currently covered by insurance, which is one of the things that we're working on in Washington. Uh, I think that's with with Senator Gillibrand's office. Sarah, isn't that the initiative that Chad's been working on to try to get coverage for this at the very least? It would be wonderful to have genetic counseling for everybody, but at the very least, it should be for someone that needs it for treatment. Yeah, the- Wow. Be specifically because of that, because there are some treatments that are best for you that can be better for you if you do know the profile of your tumor, for example. Yeah, it's essential that as many women have access to that testing as possible. No, it's incredible what's happened in the oncology space. I mean, I'm uh, very fortunate to have worked in my the younger part of my uh, earlier part of my career with some great folks who are now in top leadership levels at some of these biopharmaceutical companies that are doing all those targeted therapies, and it is. It's just unbelievable. I get chills, like the coolest science. It's like science fiction coming to yeah. life, some of this stuff. It, it is amazing. It's, it's really, really cool. One point I just wanted to bring up, well, a few, but one is around um, the prostate cancer versus ovarian cancer research. You know, when I was speaking with Deb, who's one of your colleagues, uh, she mentioned this to me, and maybe you could just share with the audience about that perspective, just so people understand, like, why there's so little we understand, yet we hear so much about prostate cancer in a different regard. So maybe tell us about those research disparities. I'm not sure I know the statistics. I know what I know what Deb told you, but I'm not sure. That's <laughs> <laughs> off the top of my head either. But yes, that's okay. It's totally fine. <laughs> One of the things that um, I think you know uh, we talk about, and that is people talk about in the ovarian cancer community, that is sometimes a, a point of frustration, is that we we feel like um, not enough people know about ovarian cancer. There's not enough progress research about ovarian cancer, um, even though progress is being made. And uh, when you look at ovarian cancer compared to other diseases, other cancers, ovarian cancer is very underfunded. I think because it's a rare disease, a rarer disease, it's easier to say, well, of course, it doesn't get as much funding because it doesn't affect as many people. It's not like breast cancer. And it's true. It's not. However, what really, unfortunately and sadly, defines ovarian cancer is the mortality is very high. So we may have 22,000 women diagnosed every year with ovarian cancer. We also have 14,000 women who die every year from ovarian cancer. And as a, those deaths as a proportion of that total are far greater than with other diseases. And so when you look at it on a sort of like, look at it that way, ovarian cancer is very underfunded. And typically when we say underfunded, we mean federally, you know, yes. federal funding, which comes from the, uh, you know, NIH is the yep. umbrella with NCI, the National Cancer Institute, and also the DOD, the Department of Defense, strangely, um, or not strangely, funds ovarian cancer research. Okay. So th- that's usually what we're talking about. I mean, we, okay. us too, we would love to give more money privately, but um, we're small part of that. I think we are more, you know, focused on young investigators and collaboration, but those are the big grants, you know. Okay. So... I think what what we what Deb was referring to when she told you that is is just that disparity that you know 
when compared with other diseases that even have a similar mortality in terms of people that it affects like that, ovarian cancer gets much less federal funding per person than other diseases. Got it. Um, and that's wrong. I mean, yes, prostate cancer affects far more many people, but not a lot more many, not a significantly uh, greater number of people die from it. I mean, most prostate cancer patients are alive. Prostate cancer, people survive it mostly. Same with breast cancer. I mean, obviously that's not the case for everyone, but- um, But proportionately. Proportionately, right. right. Interesting. And an ovarian cancer is a far more deadly disease. And we think that it should get more attention and funding because of that. Its burden is really quite significant. Yeah, no, it's, and, you know, again, kudos to advocacy groups. So for, for women out there who, you know, haven't worked closely with them, I, I mean, advocacy groups are where it's at in going to DC and really fighting for women's health rights. I mean, all advocacy groups, even if it's not women's health, I mean, it's, it's um, such a big role. So, but it's not only going to DC. I mean, you guys also you alluded to it earlier and Deb gave me more background about educating clinicians on how to properly diagnose women, because a lot of these symptoms, even you mentioned early on, they could be other conditions. And so as a result, they may be dismissed and no one would even look at ovarian cancer. So I know that's one of the things you guys do. You have the event, uh, the conference that's coming up. So, you know, talk about some of these other things that you want women to know about the incredible efforts you're doing to help those who are struggling with this really tragic disease. Sarah, go ahead. These are both Sarah's programs, so I'm not going to, I can talk about them, but I think you're the I best. I feel like person. I've been talking nonstop. That's okay. This We're is all you. Hearing my voice. But yeah, so there's, there is, you know, I, I feel bad because I paint the sort of dire picture and I want people to understand that, you know, this is a serious, a really serious disease, but you know, there's a ton, there is a ton of hope. There is a ton of progress and OCRA, our organization, Ovarian Cancer Research Alliance, we're really trying to lead that charge, um, whether that's in in Washington, D.C., on Capitol Hill, in the lab by funding researcher, researchers and by um, supporting and educating our patients and uh, clinicians as well. So you alluded to educating clinicians. And yeah, we have this, this big, very cool program called Survivors Teaching Students that brings ovarian cancer survivors into the classrooms with med students and nursing students, really, to talk to them about the disease, the facts of the disease, but also just about the experience of dealing with an ovarian cancer diagnosis. And our hope here is that the majority of those those folks are not going to necessarily go on to become gynecologic oncologists, but they may be, you know, your gastroenterologist, they may be your internist. And so we, our hope is that we can reach those doctors and impact them so that five, 10 years later, when a woman walks into their office complaining about these weird symptoms she's having, the doctor will think, think of ovarian cancer when otherwise maybe that physician, maybe she would not have thought of ovarian cancer in that diagnosis. So we reach over 12,000 students a year through that program. And we have an army of amazing volunteers who participate in that program. And it's, it's a wonderful effort. And yes, we have, you know, a whole host of educational and support initiatives as well. Great, um, great annual conference that's taking place virtually this year, later this month, September 29th through August, uh, uh, October 2nd. Um, it's all online and we've got an amazing program of speakers um, covering topics related to research, uh, as well as survivorship issues. We have a lot of information about that on our website as well. 
Um, and we have a growing uh, host of support programs too. You know, we know that whether it's, you know, from the point of diagnosis or whether a woman's going through a recurrence years later, a cancer diagnosis, especially one of ovarian cancer, which can be a really tough disease, can be a very isolating and challenging experience. And so we're trying to meet that need. Uh, we have weekly support groups. We have a peer-to-peer support program network called Woman to Woman, uh, which we've expanded over the years um, that pairs a, women, a newly diagnosed woman with a trained volunteer mentor who can sort of encourage her and offer support uh, throughout. That's for any type of gynecologic cancer, actually. Oh, yeah. Right. That's right. Great. Thanks, Audra. So, yeah, we have a whole host of activities that we're doing. We are always busy always growing, always expanding, always just trying to evolve to uh, meet the needs of our community. And we have staff in D.C. that actually do advocacy, professionally trained staff. Um, One of the big successes last year was the DOD had flat funding for ovarian cancer for years. $20 million was their budget, and they increased to $35 million. So that was a huge win last year. Yeah. I mean, for us, that was a huge win. So we're really excited about that. And we're fighting to keep it this year. But of course, everyone's attention is sort of elsewhere right now. And they're not even there. (laughs) I wonder where that is. I I can't imagine. But um, so they're waiting for them to come back into appropriations, which will probably be after November. (laughs) Wow. I mean, I'm thrilled that you all said yes to doing this interview because it is incredibly important information. I mean, Awareness is key. And, and, you know, I hate to say the theme I see over and over again is we women don't know enough. Now, we certainly don't want to um, make women panic, but there's just such basic things we just need to be aware of that can help direct us and not dismiss whatever is happening with us. And, and the information you've shared here about ovarian cancer has been incredibly helpful. And I'm, I'm so grateful on behalf of all women who you know, are at risk, um, who've been going through this tragedy and their families, um, just grateful for the efforts you all do. It wouldn't be where it is today without, without you and organizations um, like OCRA. So huge kudos and, and thank you for this. And um, I know that this will be in, incredibly informative for, for everyone. I guess last, last quick question is, what's your greatest hope for ovarian cancer and, and women's health or e- either one you wanted to cover? I mean, I can, I can tell you, I probably speak for both of us there, I would say prevention. I mean, cure is sometimes a pejorative word in science. We would love a cure, just a, you know, of course. Pill, but I don't think it's going to happen exactly that way. But what will happen is hopefully we'll be better at identifying certainly better treatments as the next step. And yep. then the next step after that is prevention. And then maybe someday a cure. I, I, would you say so, Sarah? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, there's, there's lots of opportunities to make progress on all fronts. Um, we need better treatments for the women who do get ovarian cancer to help them live as, as uh, long and healthily as they can. But absolutely, if we can stop, we can find the women who are most likely to get ovarian cancer and stop them from getting it in the first place, it would be a huge win. And it's a very important goal. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Thank Have you. a wonderful, wonderful day and, and greatly appreciate your time. Thanks, Georgie. Thank you, Georgie.